0: Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondack, and today I'm speaking with Chris Bernhardt about his new book, Turing's Vision, The Birth of Computer Science. Chris Bernhardt is Professor of Mathematics at Fairfield University. Chris Bernhardt, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. right. Thank you for having me. Now, most of us have some knowledge of the mathematician Alan Turing from the play and the film The Imitation Game, which focused on his code-breaking work at Bletchley Park during the Second World War. But, as your book points out, Turing's work touched many more areas than code-breaking, and this book focuses on a paper he wrote in 1936 at the tender age of 24. Uh, Before we start talking about that paper, can you take us back to his personal life? What was going on in Alan Turing's life in 1936?
1: Yes. So he just um, completed his undergraduate degree at uh, Cambridge University and had started a fellowship. Now, while he was an undergraduate, he proved the central limit theorem, which is um, a fundamental result in statistics. It's the result that shows uh, why the normal distribution crops up all over the place. Now, Turing wasn't the first to prove this. It had, in fact, been proved uh, over 10 years earlier. But... um, the fact that he could prove it uh, and the fact that he came up with this idea showed that he had great talent. And on the basis of this, he was awarded a fellowship at uh, Cambridge. And this is a, a three-year position in which uh, covered board and lodging. And he could just concentrate on doing research. And so now he wanted to um, tackle – he was young and ambitious and he wanted to tackle an important problem. And at this time um, – Gödel's incompleteness theorems were being uh, discussed. There was a series of lectures on these theorems and during these lectures, Turing learnt of hilbert 's decision problem or in german the Entscheidung 's problem and he decided that he, he would tackle this. this would be uh, what he would work on. Uh, this decision problem is a little bit complicated, but what Hilbert was asking for, he was asking for an algorithm that uh, when you're given some statement in logic, it would tell you, the algorithm would tell you whether this statement was valid or not. And, and the important point here is that he assumed that there would be such an algorithm. And Turing, along with other mathematicians, thought that um, Hilbert, uh, Hilbert's view of uh, algorithms was wrong, that Algorithms were much more limited than Hilbert uh, thought, and so he, Turing was going to show that um, that there was no algorithm that could solve Hilbert's Entscheidungsproblem. Um, you know, Hilbert was a leading mathematician at the time, so this is a, a very ambitious uh, project. He was going to show the leading mathematician at the time uh, his view of mathematics was in fact wrong.
0: Uh, was he – was Turing alone – I guess you mentioned Turing was not alone at this point, but was he the first person to really think, okay, I'm going to write a paper to like take on Hilbert's uh, Hilbert's view on the decision-making problem? Or were there other people working on these things at the same time?
1: Well, I mean this uh, – um, yes, uh, there was somebody else working on it at the same time, unknown uh, to Turing, that in Princeton there was an established logician called uh, Alonzo Church who also thought that um, – the power of uh, algorithms was much more limited than Hilbert. And he also set out to do exactly what Turing was doing. And, um, unfortunately for Turing, that, uh, before, when he was writing up his results, um, Church published his paper and, and Church, in fact, beat Turing to, uh, proving that, uh, there is no algorithm that decides uh, Hilbert's decision problem. um, I mean, I think Turing must have been really upset to, to, to be beaten in this race. But when people looked at what they'd done, they realized that they, Turing and Church had tackled this problem in completely different ways. That, um, Church had tackled it using, um, a sort of formal logical system that's known as the lambda calculus. Uh, whereas Turing used some, uh, really ingenious, simple, Beautiful ideas. And so when people looked at uh, Turing's paper and they thought it should be published, not really for the result, because Church had beaten him to the result, but um, it should be published just for the uh, the proof, uh, the ideas it contained.
0: You don't, um, I was going to say you used a word in that description which which pops up several times in the book and that's beauty. That from a, a mathematical point of view, one of the things that made Turing so compelling was that a lot of people looked at his work and saw a certain beauty to it. Now, I am certainly not math. I'm not. I would not say tremendously mathematically inclined, but I know that in the world of math, beauty is in some ways taken as as maybe not so much a a facet of truth, but certainly more appealing to look at mathematically. Can you give us a sense of when you talk about beauty or when people talk about the beauty of one of Turing in this paper that Turing wrote, what they mean as opposed to, a, I guess, a non-beautiful mathematical paper?
1: Yes, so there's a certain elegance. When when you read through this paper, I mean, there's a simplicity. You feel that Turing's distilled things uh, um, to their most basic form, and then, um, from this uh, simple beginning, he builds this uh, very clever proof. So there's a cleverness, there's an elegance to it. That, and when you compare Turing's paper to uh, Church's paper, I mean, Kurt Gödel, who was the greatest uh, logician at the time, he read through uh, Church's paper, and he wasn't entirely convinced that Church. Um, had done what he set out to do. He wasn't entirely convinced that Church had defined algorithm correctly. But when he, he read Turing's paper, I mean, Turing's paper is so clear that I mean, he was immediately convinced that what uh, Turing had done uh, was correct. And then, of course, Turing, when he actually wrote up his paper, had to mention Church's paper. And so he proved that, uh, that his definition of algorithm was exactly the same as that of Church. And um, So there's, uh, yeah, it it, is a really beautiful paper, uh, and it contains some very beautiful proofs. So there's, uh, it contains, you know, Cantor's diagonal argument. Uh, This is a uh, a wonderful proof, uh, and Turing uses it very, very cleverly in this paper.
0: Um, Is this the paper in which he introduced the idea of a Turing machine?
1: Yes. So what Turing? So both Turing and Church were going to uh, show that no algorithm um, could solve the decision problem, and so they both needed to define what an algorithm was. And what Turing did, I mean, his, his idea was that he would look and see what people do when they do computations, and so he um, uh, broke computations down into their most elementary steps, and basic operations. And then he decided that you could design simple machines that would perform each of these operations. And so he defined what we now call Turing machines. He didn't call them Turing machines, but we now call them Turing machines. And these are very simple machines. So a Turing machine consists of a tape. The tapes divide into squares, and each square contains a symbol, uh, or it could be blank, but the symbols is usually zero or one. And then there's a tape head that covers uh, exactly one square and it could read that symbol. It can also overwrite that symbol with a new symbol and it can move one square to the left or one square to the right. Then in addition to the tape and the tape head, uh, the Turing machine has um, states. Turing actually called them states of mind. There are a finite number of these states of mind. And then just a list of instructions and these instructions... Uh, are very simple. There are the forms, so suppose that we're the Turing machines in state A and reading one on the tape. It says, OK, overwrite that one with a symbol zero, uh, move the tape head one step left or right, and enter a new state. It tells you which state to enter. And the instructions are exactly of that type. So it's very, very simple. So these machines are very simple to describe. I and mean, I think it's better to draw a little picture, as I do in the book, but um, they're very simple to describe. And then Turing goes on to say that, um, convincingly argue, that any algorithm, um, for any algorithm, you can construct a, a Turing machine that will perform that algorithm. And so this is the beginning of his um, uh, argument. And, I mean, from there, he go- shows that, in fact, you don't need to build a separate Turing machine for each algorithm. Uh, there's a universal Turing machine which will perform any algorithm. Um, the universal Turing machine um, is, is, is is a brilliant idea. Uh, and this is where he comes up with the stored program concept, which was important in the uh, building of actual computers. Uh, and, and all modern computers are universal Turing machines. So what Turing's doing in this paper is, you know, applicable to all all computers.
0: Because if people remember back, if they had seen the movie The Imitation Game, and you talk about this in your book, This whole idea of computation up until Turing and the work he did and then the stuff working in Princeton and University of Pennsylvania in the 1930s and 40s, computation was primarily – it was solely humans and that question of how could humans compute. I I got the sense that – and you mentioned in this paper, this was the beginning of saying, okay, given what you talked about, the universal Turing machine, we can now look at some of the machines that say were developed in the 19th century by Charles Babbage and others to see can these be translated into something which can compute algorithms.
1: Yes, so um, certainly I mean, uh, algorithms have been you know, part of mathematics since the, the beginning of uh, mathematics that uh, uh, Euclid's element uh, uh, includes the Euclidean algorithm, which is an algorithm for finding the uh, greatest common divisor of two whole numbers. And the, I mean, algorithms go back beyond that, and we've always had algorithms, um, and so the idea of building machines to compute algorithms, um, is, is, a, seems to be a natural idea. And as you mentioned, I mean, Babbage built a machine. I mean, Leibniz had a machine. Uh, but these machines were useful. I mean, they computed you know, a, a wide variety of computations, but it wasn't until, um, Turing that we really understood that they, you could have a universal machine that could compute any computation and, Again, one thing that Turing introduces here is the idea of this stored program concept. I mean, up until, um, the, uh, really the middle of the forties, I mean, computers were programmed by, um, you know, Change clicking switches or replugging wireboards. There were some mechanical things you had to do. And Turing realized that you, you don't need to do that. You could import the, the program and the data into memory uh, of just one machine. So this is a central idea that's uh, really owing to, to Turing.
0: Now Church was at Princeton and through the book we learned that uh that Turing had spent time at Princeton as well in the 1930s. Uh given the fact that your subtitle of this book Turing's vision is the birth of computer science, do we see any I guess particular causal links or I guess you know evidentiary links between the work that Turing was doing and then the work that ended up being done by John von Neumann who is considered the kind of the, the godfather of computer architecture?
1: Yes, so um I Turing and uh, um, after he finished this paper, he went to Princeton uh, to do his PhD under uh, Alonso Church. And while he was there, he got to know von Neumann. And in fact, um, von Neumann offered him a position there, uh, which he turned down and came back to England. But um, as you say, that von Neumann um, was this great mathematician, but also he, he was involved in the uh, development of the, the hydrogen bomb. And for that you need to do perform massive computations. And so he really needed to have computers built. Uh, and so he, he was um a power behind uh designing and uh, the architecture of, of the modern computer. And one of the key ideas was this stored program concept. And that's I mean von Neumann was the person that uh, hammered home that computers needed to have this. And again, he credited this idea to, to Turing. That um, I mean, he was aware of Turing's paper, uh, which uh, it was unusual in that most people constructing computers at this time were totally unaware of uh, the theory. Were totally unaware of, of what Turing had done.
0: You know, you talk, that answer of the theory, in the beginning of the book, you do talk about the fact that in today's computer science, people that go through computer science courses really don't, or often do not step back and take a look at the underlying philosophies and theories that gird the whole science of computing. Is this something you're trying to do with this book, to bring those things back to life so as current students in the 21st century, as they go through their learning computer science, take a step back and go, yes, you can do all these wonderful things, but don't forget, this is the scaffolding on which it's built on.
1: Well, I think um, in most computer science uh, majors do actually take a course uh, called the theory of computation. And that's, I mean, largely built uh, on the work that uh, of uh, Turing's paper. Um, so I think computer science majors um, um, are aware of what uh, Turing has done. And they're aware of things like the halting problem that comes from Turing's paper. Uh, but I think... That outside of computer science, uh, not many people know of this paper. Not many people are aware of what Turing has done, uh, and I think that seems a shame because I think it's you know one of the great the great papers of the uh, 20th century. And I you know compare it to um, quantum mechanics and uh, theory of relativity. That most people have an idea of what these theories are. Um, you know, they might be a little bit hazy, but they've got some idea of what these theories are. But I mean, general relativity and quantum mechanics involve you know, quite complicated mathematics to really understand them. You really need a, a graduate uh, degree. Whereas Turing's paper, again, is a really important paper, but um, most people can understand what Turing did. It's a, it's a, it's a simple, it's a, it's a fairly simple argument that builds uh, very carefully. So, uh, Really what I would like to do, I'd like to, uh, for more people to become aware of what Turing did. But I, I do think that in, in computer science, uh, um, computer scientists are aware of this paper. In fact, I think it's uh, really um, that the discipline of computer science uh, really stems from this paper.
0: I was going to say, if you think about really Turing from when he died in 1954, he really was lost for many decades. And so I guess for people that appreciate the work that he did – your work and his, the uh, posthumous recognition that he had gotten for his work at Bletchley Park—it is like seeing that he's finally fifty years after his death getting the getting the honors he deserved.
1: Yeah, yes, I think yes, he's certainly become much more well known now, uh, um, and I think you know he's because he, he led a very interesting life. I mean, uh, I think that uh, that you know he, his work during the Second World War was very important, and then I think. You know, the changing attitude towards um, homosexuality. You know the thought that he was actually uh, prosecuted for being gay and that he had uh, this chemical castration is something that uh, I, it just seems so shocking now. Uh, and um, yeah, in, in the book I, I include Gordon Brown's apology to, to Turing, and I think that's uh, again I, I, that's um, I think a very eloquent apology.
0: Chris Bernhardt, the author of Turing's Vision, The Birth of Computer Science. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2016, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.